From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out The Big Picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, as always, is Andy Greenwald. And today, a very special guest to talk about a very special television show that he created. It's Patrick Somerville! Ooh, I got the yell. I got the yell. I was about, but I was about to say, do you ever wish that someone yelled your name, Chris? Um, Andy did it once yeah, and it felt weird yeah it felt really weird i think people didn't like it you know <laughs> do you want me to maybe pat mcafee it uh oh, you, will you mcafee might yeah it, i'll do it now i was I, I, <laughs> we want to protect the pipes because we got to ask you a lot of questions yeah well, wait but, till i get to the middle part where i talk about my immuni- immunization listen chris <laughs> i'll do it when the right time comes okay? okay you don't need to pitch on when i'm gonna do your pa- okay yes yes <laughs> oh, um so, someone's still feeling the showrunner vibes okay all right uh, somebody hears the eagles creeping up behind his <laughs> no, number one seat. that's true actually they have some fire those yeah. eagles and like uh the packers have some some vulnerabilities but can i speak hey, to we, what andy just said yeah, still yeah. Feeling, as a it's hard to shed it, the showrunner of it, isn't it? You know, like coming home uh, and uh, trying to do the dishes and you're trying to showrun dinner time. <laughs> yeah. And it's a real thing. It's it's a rough, rough re-entry. With but do you know life. what really kind of really like knocks the showrunner right out of you? It's a, it's a really spicy sandwich I recommend of marriage and a pandemic. You know what I mean? Bam. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bam. That, that's the ego killer. Can you guys, you guys should definitely make Born on the 4th of July, but about coming home from showrunning. <laughs> or hurt, hurt you, you don't know what point. I went through, brother. <laughs> I was in the shit. <laughs> so much empathy for that story, I'm sure. Um, Patrick, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with our podcast, The Watch, but I used to twice listen. a week. <laughs> we get it. We get when it. I had a show called Maniac, and then I quit for two years, and I started again. 
twice, <laughs> twice a week, we extol the virtues of the very best of television. And your show, Station Eleven, was the very best of television of the year 2021. And we're so excited to talk to you about it. And we're so grateful for the show you made. Uh, well, I'm grateful for you guys, the, the way you watch on The Watch, because I think Station Eleven is a show that is doesn't do quite all the normal TV things sometimes, but it does some of them. And the reason I like you guys, I think, is the reason you guys like the show, maybe, I, I think. And it has something to do with high-low. I'm a big high-low guy. I don't know. And, and I think, like, I like things from any tranche. <laughs> of the culture, uh, <laughs> depending on how they make me feel. I also like them remixed, but I, I think there's something I remember back in the leftovers days, Andy, uh, you were particularly allergic to not reaching for something tough, but doing it too soon in an unearned way, you mm -hmm. know, like there's oh, look at Mr. Fancy pants show, uh, like trying to talk deep without earning it from me i think it was you always the said trust, that yeah. earning the trust right yeah um so i am grateful that you guys just dove in i saw on twitter when you said the show is number one i, I literally was like they've made some kind of mistake <laughs> <laughs> like there was a second digit like a second <laughs> integer next to the one that this, we forgot yeah. what's a, a typo but with with like 10 words yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that was like this camp but i also um i've loved listening to you guys talk about it just because you had no idea, like you don't, you didn't, neither of you knew any anything of the stories of making it, mm -mm. and and we've all been in our own COVID holes. But it's just like it's translating itself very well to the outside world. The intention is getting to the audience quite well. So to jump in, I kind of wanted to start, and obviously we're we're recording this after the finale has aired. We're going to talk about the entire series. We do have some questions and thoughts and reflections on the finale itself, but I think that they will be folded in like uh, like egg whites into the batter of this particular conversation. Nice um, metaphor. Good thank figurative you. language there. Appreciate that. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, I want to uh, kind of start at the start. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about your relationship with Emily St. John Mandel and her book which, as you noted, neither of us had read when it came out, which makes us, I don't know, I'm not good. a minority, but... Neutral. It, neutral. Like, a lot yeah. of people read this book and loved it and had very strong opinions about it. Um, for you, coming off of Maniac and considering that we were already, even pre-pandemic, living in a fairly dystopic time, um, what was it about the book, your relationship to the book, uh, that made you want to devote you know, ended up being more years than you anticipated, but to devote years of your life to this type of story. It's to funny, this story. It's funny because I called Emily from my Maniac trailer uh, when when we were almost done shooting sometime, sometime in 2017, late 2017 in New York. I had heard just through through my manager, I was going to go to a general with this producer. And he was like, by the way, this is the guy who got Station Eleven. And he said that to me because I had always been tracking, like, what's up with that book? Yeah. Uh, and I knew, because I loved it. I loved it when it came out. I knew Emily barely. Uh, I mean, we had met for a day and read together at a bookstore in the outskirts of, uh, of Chicago that four people came to. <laughs> we, we had joined forces in order to uh, insulate <laughs> ourselves from exactly what happened. And I got, you guys will appreciate this. Uh, Emily remembered, and I had forgotten. It only said Emily St. John Mandel on the sign when we got to the store. And one of the bookstore employees came with a Sharpie 
and I said, and Patrick Somerville <laughs> wrote it into the sign and misspelled my name. It was a full on uh, <laughs> puppet show and spinal tap situation. <laughs> <laughs> and four people came. It was sort of just like the brutal life of a mid-list author for, and for both of us. And on the drive, I drove her back to O'Hare. And on the drive, I was like, it's impossible to support a family or ever have a house or take care of a baby or anything being a writer of literary fiction, I think. Even though, like, you know, my book's coming out from Little Brown and getting reviewed in the New York Times, and I'm broke. Uh, and she was like, me too. And she, I was like, I'm going to try to get into TV. And she said, I'm going to try writing one more novel. And she said, I just started one. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Two years later, I'm sitting like in the bridge season two writer's room and I see Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, New York Times bestseller. Like it's skyrocketing. And that was the book that she was uh, in the middle of. So we had this kind of beautiful, weird one day experience and both went our separate ways. But when I was in New York in that trailer, I had heard that the the movie version of Station Eleven had, had, was in what we call development hell. A lot of money spent on a script that wasn't good, the, the rights holder not. And I was like, I want to go have a meeting with him. Scott Steindorf, producer, uh, Stone Village is his production company. And I went and I said, this can't be a movie. Uh, the, there's too many people in it that matter. Like you can't, you can't get dimensionality from six people or eight people into a film really like you need. And then there's too many times in it. Also, that was my other thing I said to Scott, like it needs, it should be limited series because in 2012 when I, or 14, when I first got here, people thought limited series were weird. Like I was interested, but every time I brought that up, people would be like, no, there's no money there. (laughs) That's <laughs> often what the town said. And then True Detective came and it did do a seismic shift. It, there was a paradigm shift in our business with True Detective. And there, there was another one with Fargo. There was both the anthology idea, but then I guess with Fargo, I would say you can make a movie into a show again and it can be good. Like, those were big ripples. I bet you guys were feeling it too on this side. And and then Andy, you were getting into to writing then too. But anyway... Scott was like, thank God, <laughs> because I think whatever was going on with that script was not capturing what he loved about the novel. And my conversation with him made him feel like I could. And, and so we made a deal, and that deal was a deal with Paramount as well. And we kicked off our, our development of, of the show you guys just finished watching. So not to... F- harp too much on the book because as I said, we hadn't read it, but I did after finishing the finale, pick it up and start reading it and was instantly kind of flabbergasted enough that I think I, I texted you directly because in the book, the play happens, Arthur dies, Kirsten and Jeevan cross paths and then they say goodbye and then that's it. And Jeevan walks out into the snow and then <laughs> buys groceries and goes to Frank and has his life and Kirsten is in the traveling symphony. And I was totally stunned by this, totally stunned by this. Um, basically, what it meant was that you and subsequently your writer's room were responsible for inserting what emerged as the series' key emotional spine into the story. And so, broadly speaking, I'm curious, 
about your relationship with adaptation and the freedom you felt to do that and to change things and to steer into the story that you wanted to spend your life, years of your life making. But also on a very like micro level, how, why, and when did you know that the series had to begin with and be about that simple act of kindness and the subsequent connection between these two strangers? It's so easy after the facts to wrap it into sort of a, a mega narrative or like a, a macro, but it always feels like it's a good sign when you're coming upon things honestly uh, for small reasons of problem solving and, and they accrue over time. So it, honestly, it, it really was like Jeevan's alone. We want to do the first episode there and on the day in the Jeevan story, basically. But for TV, you can't do that. He's, he can't be alone. An and interior. Have, yeah. He, you can't, there's no way to represent it right. Or sure, we could, we could bend over backwards and try to innovate formally and, and do things. Or, um, you know, sh it was show it in all the ways that, that the tricks that we have the objective correlative or like the train move, you know, there's ways, but in TV, it's like, he's got to talk to someone. He needs a partner. It needs to be a two hander <laughs> basically. Um, and so like, I think that need was there. That's often how it happens in the writer's room. There's a suction for like a want and you don't, and you don't have it yet, but then the conversation continues. Um, and it was actually Nick Hughes in the mini room that we had at the top end. And he was like, what if Kirsten ends up in the apartment? And it, when people in the room, when someone says an idea like that, that's like, it's like, like a little bomb. And then you, <laughs> and then you start thinking, you're like, whoa. And then you feel it roll through the season and you feel what happens to the Frank and Jeevan story. It's not the Frank and Jeevan story anymore. And then you, you feel it all the way through to like, oh, this is the core of our show. If we do this. So, um, we came by it, honestly, we needed, we needed two people to be able to, and then it's also, it's just good TV. It's just like a kid, a guy offers to walk a kid home for a good moral, he's a good guy. And, and then he kind of gets stuck and then he finds out the world's ending on the way. And she doesn't also have her key. <laughs> like he, he's got to take her with. And I, I think like, that's just a good episode. There's the adventures in babysitting tower off in the end to get to, and they, they got a journey they got to go on. But the, what's happening morally for Jeevan there was very sparkly to me as a dad, but just as like, as a TV watcher too, like, what would you do? Well, I, wa I want to jump in on what you just said about being a dad, because I think that I feel like you've already sort of suggested the shape of your answer by saying that you felt this emerge like a rolling bomb that's going to affect everything. You know, you can't actually solve the problem before you even know what the question of the problem is. So it's sort of useless to ask you about moments you realized what the themes of the series were going to be or what was going to emotionally land. That said, the degree to which the show is about parenting obviously knocked me flat. And to get to a point in the finale where you have a line of dialogue that I almost can't say out loud because I found it so moving, which is when you finally do bring these two characters back together, which, by the way, incredible flex. I was okay with them not getting back together. That's an incredible <laughs> I was almost okay with the idea that they would just miss each other at the end. Yes, airport. exactly. Yeah, because they know? were fine. And that's the way life works sometimes. And that was also what the show is teaching us. 
But then mm. that moment when they say to each other, I was never scared with you. And he says, I was scared all the time. Oh. That's being a parent, you know, and that's what, especially what our lives have been for the last few years. And, um, you know, knowing that uh, now hearing you say that Nick suggested one small thing that landed this gimme Gucci air. Did I say it right? Gichigumi, Gichigumi airplane Gichigumi, of a yeah. series. Yeah. It means big sea no, water in Ojibwe. No. Uh, yeah, no, I, I knew that going Tim in. Tim Simon's yeah, but, <laughs> one of my favorite lines of the whole show. It's but, not a, it doesn't seem like a joke at all, but I love that line. But uh, nine episodes later, like that's that's what the soul of the show was, is was very moving. But I'm also just curious how you, how, how you found your way to that. Man, wouldn't it be feel right uh, if like, you were on your deathbed and your kid said, I was never scared with you. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, would, I, I would take that deal right now. <laughs> uh, me too. Uh, and, I'm a, <laughs> and I think what they would say is you're a monster <laughs> oftentimes. <laughs> um, but we're scary to kids. We are uh, just, just like raising the volume of your voice is like, uh, is like you turning into a T-Rex for them. It's so easy to forget it when you're at home, but I think to answer your question, I also just think about the actors when I'm thinking about that last scene that I think I wrote that scene 70 times <laughs> mm -hmm. I was. And, and I think if I, if, if that's what happens when you know you have the right scene and then you're just like, I, it's like an opportunity to get it so right. Um, and then they started assisting in the days leading up to the, to the shoot of that scene. And they had the instinct that was so right, which is like, we stayed up all night and caught each other up. Yep. We, and the show isn't the kind of show that does that scene, nor is it one that does the montage of them MOS talking to each other with music playing either. We just were like, they did that thing. We all, but the reason we felt safe also skipping that is like, you know, in the audience, everything they have to say to each other. Yeah. That was We've what seen felt it. We cool. were there. Yeah. Right. It's the first time in the show that the now is now for both of them. There is no need for flashes now. There's no need for like editorial maneuvers to mm -hmm. orient emotionally because we're with them subjectively completely. And that was so cool to me. I was like, this scene is different than every other scene in the show. It's also, it's my favorite scene in the show. I, Andy, I don't, I've not told you that, but you, br you brought it up uh, independently. But the actors were like, what we want to do, they, they had already kind of, had their meet, talk together and they like, they came to me and they were sort of like, here's what we uh, would like to do. And it would, thank God it was exactly right. And I, and I was like, yes, absolutely. But this happens sometimes when like the actors have a meeting and then they come to you with a proposal <laughs> that they've already discussed. Uh, and uh, this one was coach. I mean, we've decided. <laughs> yeah. And then we should hook a, and ladder offense. And there's a start. version that we're not asking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which right. is another thing, but Mackenzie and Hamas are the best and they're, they're so smart. They're so literary. They're so kind of writers and readers themselves. And uh, they were like, we want to throw it almost all away. Uh, and I was like, exactly. Good. Yes. Silence it. We want to play the silences. And we were like, not quite mumblecore, uh, but almost more like um, jumping on rocks across a river. Like each one, like the yo-yo line is, is important. The one you said, Andy, is really important. The one that absolutely kills me is when she says you walked her home. Mm -hmm. Ugh. And I wasn't there on the day that day. I, our editor, David Eisenberg, just realized it yesterday while we were sitting and I was like, holy fuck. She 
when she says that, she takes a beat before she says it, and she looks off. And I always thought um, that's because she was about to start crying and she was collecting herself. I think she actually is about to start crying and collecting herself. But he was like, no, she's looking at the symphony. Her eye line, like, is, she looks left toward that part that where the, where the wagons are headed. And then she says, you walk, that's, she's looking at them. And I was like, oh my God. And then our producer, Jessica, who was there on the day was like, yeah, and that was obvious when you're there on the day. She knew that always. It's so funny, but I didn't know that until, um, whatever, eight months later, emotionally it captivated me either way. But that's, that speaks to, I think, Himesh and Mackenzie's deep conceptual understanding of the show. Um, and that's not always true. And sometimes it's because someone's only with you a little bit. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes you've lost an actor and sometimes they don't care. And sometimes they don't get it and they're doing it anyways. And then sometimes they're your partners. Mm-hmm. When you talk about this show, you sound, you obviously sound very affectionate. There's a lot of warmth in the way you talk about the characters and also about the actors. And I was wondering whether or not, you know, going into the finale... I'm watching it. It's a very, very benevolent finale. You know, you give like a lot to these characters in the last episode. And was there any push-pull within the writer's room or push-pull within inside of you that was like, I want to bring Miranda back. I want to have this moment with Clark. I want to have this moment for Tyler. You know, I versus what does the story need to be? And what is like, what would this world actually give them? This world oh, that we've created. You're saying like... Do, did I ever think this is too much? Yeah. Is it I mean, giving it's a, it, too I, much? Is this breaking I, story law somehow I by giving too much? I didn't, but I thought it, it I was wondering whether that was a conversation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I, just to give you some context too, like I was the kid in Dungeons and Dragons when I was DMing that gave a wish to everybody uh, <laughs> at the end of the adventure, like too much treasure. I that I did that all the time. Too too powerful of magical armor. Yeah. Has, the reward is too gigantic. I think it's because I'm a giver. Uh, like and and I don't mean that like I'm uh, ultra generous. I mean like my problem is like when I when I'm on my heels. Even I'm that's the move I'm trying to do to make people feel okay again. We all have our moves, and and it doesn't mean also you can't be generous right. in like a, a, a true way, but like it's a move sometime, um, uh, sometimes. And, and in this case, I'm wary of myself as a writer, be, be exactly the question you're asking, Chris. Like, and so, but in this one, I was like, no, it's, you know why it's okay? All of it. Um, because Miranda calls a captain and says, seal the door of your plane. Sure. To a bunch of people. And he does. And he says, those people don't deserve it. And she says, you're right. They don't. And then just sits there and waits. Like They don't deserve it. It's true what she's saying. And it's the most brutal truth. And it also, for me, ripples into pandemic stuff. No one deserves this. It's, it's not a moral question. Of course not, you know? Um, but we, nevertheless, here it is. 
You know, like there is no ex- explanation exactly. And there, there's no, as often said in the show, there's no rescue mission really either. This is what it is. Hold on. Like s- s- get your stance right, take a breath. And like, you're strong enough. We're strong enough to do it. So because that truth is that t- it's like tough love or something, Chris, like, it's like, it's such a brutal truth in there. I was like, it's okay. And then the other thing I'll add after that very long answer is the post-apocalyptic genre, once I started really thinking about this genre, I was like, I'm not so sure anyone's done this. I'll just put it this way. This feels like an opportunity. If you kill uh, billions at the top, you don't need anyone else to die for your story. <laughs> yeah. You've, you, have, you have launched your rocket. Now do something with it. Like, don't, you can't go back to that well um, for drama. Uh, you used it once. It was your booster. Go. So, like, if I always was, I think, navigating with, like, uh, with, with that particular knife in the sheath still. Minus, minus the end of episode four, which is sort of a different thing. Um, and, may, and, it, and that one maybe fired my radar of, like, I'm not so sure uh, in this show, but this is dangerous and we need to, we need to tell the story of danger being alive for once, at least for real. The, you're we, talking, you're referring to the, the end of when they're at Ping Tree, right? Yeah. The kids. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. I, I have a bunch of questions about uh, the kindness as on display in the show, but I know Chris and I wanted to ask you specifically about, um, about the end of four and the return of the girl with the minds in 10 because as you may have heard us say on the podcast, that was the one thing that I, I, I think that was remained a little opaque to me, which was specifically yeah. Tyler's Ty- culpability. Yeah. Yeah. Did just Tyler basically was, that- it, was that Tyler's mission or was that something that was happening outside of his sort of sphere right. of influence? Well, I would say there's like my mind breaks in, into two things when this comes up too, which is like story-wise, um, did we fail to clarify properly? And that's one question. And then like, I, I have an answer to kind of more process wise uh, about the storytelling too. Like we had some more scenes involving Haley throughout the season that didn't, didn't make and it. And Haley's the girl at the end. Correct. That, name that is, Kirsten reads the, to. The character's name is Haley Butterscotch. Not that you would know that. Uh, it's impossible to. Great name. Um, but, but she's sort of like a, to me, like a comp for, for young Kirsten also. Uh, this is, and then mm-hmm. she, she played a role in episode two a bit more than, than ended up being in the show. And I, I, do, I did know there was going to be some consequences to that. And I think one of them is, in six, when Mackenzie has the knife to Tyler's throat, he actually sort of clarifies, he answers your question, at least Chris, in part, where he's like, while I was fucked up because you stabbed me and I was in critical condition, one of the other kids took control of the story and started telling a different story. Haley started telling a different story. She, he says it there, but it's kind of, he's sort of spitting it, but it's also like, there's no context for Haley. It, it, it's not just the lack of context. I think that I heard that. And so that was my answer to Chris. And we were talking about this offline. I think that the issue for me was that at that point in the story, I don't know how I feel about Tyler yet. Yes, I don't know if right. I trust him. Right. No, the right. He might be throat. full of shit. You're Mackenzie there. You're exactly. You're, yeah. So I held it at arm's length until 
you know, he started to crack and we started to realize where we were going and the, the, the tenor of the back half of the season. But I also think here's, so that's all the, like, I wish that scene was in there because you would have, you would have listened in a different way had it been and you would have known it, but whatever, it's okay. Because my real answer, I feel like Chris, to your question is he is not morally clean. You know, like just because a person repairs with their mother does not mean they are innocent of all charges. Oh yeah, right. You know what I mean? And I'm not. Yeah, this is this is more sort of about. Um, I don't know when when they walk away at the end. You see, there's thousands of kids uh, out there, which means what Cody said was right. The undersea is scale wise way bigger than we may have suspected, and. Throughout episode 10, there was maybe an army out there with mines waiting to come in, depending on what they heard from their leader. And what they heard from their leader was, we're all good. I got my mom We destroyed the karaoke. It's fine. (laughs) Well, I... I, I crushed it on stage. I delivered a pretty yeah. fucking insane. Danny just killed that monologue. And I, it makes me cry. But also, I got my mom back. Like the kids, he's been saying there is no before. And now this guy walks out with the before, uh, with his arm around the before. So like, but it, it, it'll be a, a rough tribal council, I think, for the undersea <laughs> tonight. But, but like, come on in, guys. <laughs> what I was saying, it's, it's it, so Max Fisher too. He's like, I, I was in a hit play. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay now. Yeah. But it, what I, I think like, what it means though is like, this is, I am such a cynical human about institutions. Like this is how corrupt institutions get founded. That uh, people who are not morally clean with more power than they probably know what to do with, who are human, sure, but maybe have it in them to deploy their powers for bad as well as good. He's going to start a church. He is definitely on his way to go start a church with the, with this holy book, you know, like it's not going to, they're going to do this shit again. Probably it's going to recreate itself. The bad thing to the kids. You can't just say, Oh, I got stabbed. Um, because you started the, you made the whole system. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So um, returning back to some of what you were saying before um, about being a giver and about the kindness, you know, I found it especially in regards to the Jeevan storyline. I mean, this was the tenor of the show overall. And I did wonder if there was like, you know, uh, a motto written above the writer's room door about being kind to each other, being kind to these characters, which I so appreciated. But specifically, (laughs) you know, everything about our last 10 years of watching TV has taught us to pick up certain signals and certain signs. And there is nothing in the first nine episodes of Station Eleven that suggests that Jeevan is going to be blessed with anything other than, you know, maybe being torn apart by a wolf or something terrible that's lurking out there. And the, not just the kindness you showed the character, but the very, very specific, trippy, almost incredibly, you know, surreally beautiful needle drop of creep while a dozen women give birth in a furniture store uh, scene that you, and again, this is something I found out after the fact that you guys came up with from whole cloth. I found really, uh, really noteworthy and really notable. And I, and I think that that ties into also what you're saying before about no one deserves this death, you know, and Miranda says it like there is, that is the nature of not just our lives always, but what's been brought into focus over the last few years. We don't deserve this. We got to deal with it. And sometimes the way we can deal with it is with kindness or humor, right? And to bring that back to childbirth, and this is something I was saying on the pod last week about it. It's just like, that's something that, that uh, I'll just use I statements as a dude, you know, entering into parenthood. That was a sense that I had to learn and I still not very good at, which was the sense of it's coming one way or another. This baby's coming. So mm-hmm. you could choose how you react to it, but it's not a question of whether you deserve it or you can stop it or let's pause and think about it. You know what I mean? Like there is a, yes, I do. There's, there's a, very there is much. a kindness and grace that you brought to that episode into that story that I just found so moving and noteworthy. And in, at the end of this monologue, praising you, the question I would like to land on is how did you get there? I hmm. guess, how did you get there in that episode it, with that grace note for Jeevan in the penultimate episode where we're used to George Pelicano's killing people on the wire? That's our version of it. Baby, baby apocalypse is our version. (laughs) Nothing, nothing says this is what's happening better than a whole bunch of doctors flying into the room where your wife is trying to deliver saying there's a problem and we're going to intervene now. Uh, Just like from the dad point of view, you know, that, so that happened for me personally and for her, I should say for us. Uh, on on one of our three, and and so from the dad point of view, you're just uh, you are like in a sea of forces that you can't control, uh, and I think for a lot of us, especially when we go to work, and this is wh- whether or not this is a man thing or an us thing, it's probably about it's like. Having control uh, over the situation is a way to feel safe, and it's also an illusion, usually. Uh, and I think it's it's 
it's very, very good for us to acknowledge that we are less powerful than the things around us. And we have to, we can't, you can't punch the ocean, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you, but you can ride it. Uh, and I, and I think like uh, on a surfboard and the, I think that distinction's really, it was really good for me. All, these are all traumatic moments that I'm thinking of where like moments I realized I absolutely was a tiny being not in control of anything. It hurts. Um, but I think I really wanted to tell a story where that idea is the idea, but it's okay. You know? And I think in episode one, that like thing rises up um, and it's big. It, and that's what causes the panic attacks that Jeevan's having. But in nine, that it's that thing is rising up again. Um, but he stands there and sort of like stays present, which is exactly what Mackenzie's doing in episode seven uh, when she's watching the fight. And, and Lucy Cherniak, the director of Seven, did that amazing shot where she pushed over the fight, ignored it with the camera, but went right to Mackenzie. And the, the conversation I had with Mackenzie on that day was, it was that Marcus Aurelius quote, which I, I don't know what the actual quote is, but it's basically, it, it's, it's basically look the thing in the eye and don't run. Like the, like, and that's what Terry says to Jeevan in Nine too, like the courage to bear witness. <laughs> like it's hard to stay there and just stay. And I think, so Jeevan and, and Kirsten are on the same arc kind of in, in the development of the show before they get to their hug, which is like, they both need to learn that thing. Like stand and look at it. It doesn't mean you can change it. In seven, she literally is like in ghost rules, cannot, uh, but she can go talk to herself about it. And for Jeevan, he can't save Rose at the end. He can't. But he can, when she says, is my baby going to die? The answer is yes, permanently, forever, for every single human being. Uh, it's, it's always true. Yes. Uh, um, some, eventually. But, but he, for the first time, looks back at her. And I, like, I can see Himesh playing it. He doesn't answer. Um, because he thinks, like Terry's given him the nod and he thinks probably the answer is yes, but there's compassion in not saying it um, and just and saying, he says, you're helping, you know, he's just being there, listening, being together. Like there's really, I don't know. I think the morality of the show is getting born in there too uh, at the end of nine or being demonstrated clearly. And I think Jeevan is being born in that scene somehow, uh, the, the, ver the human we meet at the end of the episode. But this is where, you know, Andy, your question was about, it started in sort of the dad area uh but just like how scary that is but like stay <laughs> acknowledge you can't do it uh you don't know how figure out how to help even saying how i how can i help is annoying figure <laughs> out how you can help and do it <laughs> like that's sort of what the show is trying to do so like if that was the guiding principle all that that i just said like that's how it happens i guess so that's how you if you i hope you feel versions of that in the different episodes um, but I think it evolved from the storytelling and then we, I'll talk, maybe we'll talk, the crossboard was such a mind fuck. We shot so out of order, but I think this show ends up having these like kind of more realized elements of itself earlier than usual because we had, we, we shot two last. 
we shot episode two last, you know, like we sort of, it's, it's a weird um, spread of what we knew and when. I want to ask a little bit about texts because this is the thing that kind of, I really would chew on after every episode is just thinking about the relationship of characters to the performance of Hamlet, the text of Hamlet, but also like what their kind of understanding of literature or music would have been throughout this experience. And something that Andy and I talked about last week that I I wanted to get your feelings on was, you know, Station Eleven is kind of this malleable thing that's in these people's lives. Like we never get like a page by page, like here's what happens in this book. And it's obviously this sort of labor for Miranda, but it's these two, it means two different things to uh, Kirsten and Tyler, although it also means the same thing. But I was wondering, like, Kirsten has, I think, (laughs) kind of almost like a classical education in her life. Like she gets to be around great works of theater and music oh, yeah. and is made raised this point. It was yeah. so smart. I had never thought of it, but she, I was she, curious, but like what, yeah. what is Tyler's relationship to like education? And is he almost like this looking at it as like folklore and like, he as, went to trade school. He, no, but like, but like, he's like, but at that point when he's just <laughs> University like university of life, when she's like, that's not what it says. And he's just like, eh, it doesn't matter. But she knows I, she, you, you feel she's right right there right yeah like, yeah she she knows it because she's a pro um and she's an she actor she, she's, she's off the book she yeah. knows her, she knows her lines yeah but and it's and i think though like you hit chris on that that idea and i had never thought of it and i think Mackenzie's playing it but it's so right she kind of went to like McAllister, like one like she went to one of the great great books schools i don't know if McAllister is what's what's that one like that, we know when the, the college is like, we don't do anything, but you read the canon all yeah. day, every day. Yeah. That's sort of what her education was, right? She's read every Shakespeare play and performed everyone and talked it out and argued about meaning. Like that's, she has a Western education in humanities. Um, and, and so for Tyler, it's this, it's like he has one book, not all of them, not 32 plays. He has one and he read it compulsively as a 12 year old and then burned it. So he only has his memory of his book. I guarantee you that's the only book he's ever read uh, before, before he picks up Hamlet or watches Hamlet, I should say in two, but then reads it again in 10. I don't, he has, he is a one text person um, and he also is forgetting it. And he's also riffing on it and changing it. And he's sort of not aware of it. But I think like his comp though, Chris, is like alone in the woods, mm-hmm. f- terrified. And like, I think we know he found Rose. We don't know what that story was. We know he was late in coming to catch up and he, and he, he didn't get to say goodbye. And he knew enough, I think, to leave that baby. But and that baby was Alex, right? That's that baby that's is canon. Alex. Yeah, that's canon. We, it's in the show. It's like there's that's her. What's not canon or what's left to the interpretation is what Tyler knows about that. I think mm-hmm. often the audience is ahead of the characters in our show, and that feels true here. But when he left there, he's devastated again. I think like aloneness. He's sort of educated in the in the kind of horrifying world of aloneness. Uh, for too much, for too long, probably for for years to come. He he reached out and connected one person, and and that happened. So I I feel like he didn't. I don't think he's talked to a grown up again 
since mm-hmm. he's taught since until Kirsten. I think he only talks to kids really. Another kind of text that shows up in in the show is is the music, and it's specifically the the needle drops. But two songs that I responded to uh, almost <laughs> more passionately than I was uh, prepared for was excursions in episode seven and one fine morning in episode eight, I believe. And yeah, uh, yeah like we talked a little bit about how the Bill Callahan song acts as this almost counterbalance to such an intensely sincere emotional oh God, moment. Yeah. And then he's like, and he yeah. is like kind of smirking about the end of the world. And that actually like is like this pressure valve release. But then, you know, the thing that everybody has kind of, I think responded to is being like freezing to death in an apartment tower and reconstructing a tribe called quest song. And, uh, <laughs> Andy and I have, have like 400 questions about that, but I guess it is. Can you just tell us a little bit about it's gotta be this uh-huh. song and what, how that came about. I mean, these are the two perfect examples to demonstrate how wildly different this, this can happen process wise. Uh, Oh, oh, by the way, you know, whose voice that is, uh, clipped up doing, doing the beat in, in one Oh seven, Scott Steindorf, the producer, the producer that I went to and and that's him. Um, that's him reading a uh, chapter uh, of a billionaire's uh, autobiography uh, about revenge and the savings and loan scandal <laughs> that, that we wrote for him. Anyways. Okay. So ex- excursions for me, like being from green Bay, like that's a deeply personal, like finding hip hop when I was, when I was 13, um, 14, 15, Digable planets, like finding that uh, as a kid, was really deeply meaningful for me just like for, and I love Tribe Called Quest and I have since then. And when I mentioned it to Nabon, he just, he just looked at me via zoom, of course, but Nabon has a certain piercing gaze that (laughs) transcends. And he said, if I can rap excursions, that would be the greatest thing ever. And like (laughs) he, he, he was for him. It was very meaningful as a kid. I think I don't, you know, I could just feel it in, in London. And I think he's, he'd been listening to that song since he was, uh, two. <laughs> I, I, and you can, you can tell when he does it, that he knows it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's been practicing for a long time. So that was scripted, planned, prepped, rehearsed, uh, always there. Uh, you know, but Liza Richardson, our music supervisor, who's the best music supervisor, I think, was deeply in conversation with Ali Shaheed Muhammad and just like getting getting that ready. That was a prepped and gigantic thing. But here's, but Liza, here's what's awesome about Liza. We didn't know what the hell we were going to do all the way to the end. And I have, I had never heard of Bill Callahan until Liza sent me that song as a, after after a bunch that didn't work a bunch that were almost right, but not right. We were going back to score. We were, I was calling Dan Romer and being like, and, but, but I knew the thing what you're pointing out, Chris too, which is like it, the balance was off tonally. Like we needed, and Liza was like, check this out. And I was like, Liza, what the fuck? <laughs> what, who is this? What is this? What is, and how is this possible? This exists already because look what happens when you drop it in to the picture cut. We couldn't change picture by then. So it's not like we cut that to, to the song. Yeah. Yeah. 
we found it, we found it in the stage in the, in the, it was way too late to make a change of picture. So that just happened <laughs> the way that, and that happened, not only that, but we didn't, that's, we just put the top of the song where the, the temp score was, where we needed a change. When he says, um, I release you from the undersea. That's what happened automatically. So like you can plan it and make the groove to make it work or I don't know. And I've been, now I've been listening to Bill Callahan, all of his album. And McKen- <laughs> here's the other great thing. Mackenzie watched eight and she was like, is this Bill Callahan? It text, she was a real, kind of like live texting me as she was watching. And, and I was like, yeah, Liza, Liza just showed. And she's like, Bill, he's my favorite singer. He's my favorite musician and singer songwriter. I listen to constantly all of his music compulsively. And I, she had never told me about him. Holy and so shit. that part, it's just like, sometimes that happens. It's right because it's right. And that's what she was like playing Bill Callen already somehow uh, on the day. You know what I mean? So we're, we're, we're running out of time, which is a shame because we could talk to you about the show for hours and it also feels a shame that to have this conversation and not say the names like Daniel Deadweiler, David Wilmot, Matilda Lawler. So many. Um, the, They're the, also the casting good. is exemplary and so uh, Hiro Mirai. <laughs> the direction yeah. by Hiro Mirai and the, the, the tone. Uh, Lucy Cherniak, Helen Shaver. But so I, Jeremy Pettis. I'm going to. I'll stop. No, no. But the question I'm going to ask kind of is all of this, which is to say, um, as the you know, whether you accept the mantle or the mantle was thrust upon you as essentially the conductor of this very bizarre symphony um, that stretched over, like, not just years, but eras of the show, starting the show pre-pandemic, reassembling the show a year later, multiple directors, multiple cast members, some playing the same character, different timelines, very, very different locations. How did you conduct it? How was it possible to maintain an aura of consistency in purpose, in tone, in, you know, collective goal during all of that? And, 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 and I guess the question is basically based in looking back in hindsight, now that you have accomplished that the show is done and locked and out in the mm-hmm. world. I felt my way through it. That's the only way. Like, you can't, you can make a schematic, you can make a big map. You can make a grid, you can write an essay, you can say what you're going to do. But like the only thing, the only way I know how to make shows is to feel my way through it. And it's, it's a feeling. Um, And that's the same in the edit. It's the same on the day. It's when we're working it out, but like, that's scary. Um, And I think when I was younger and less experienced in TV, I was, I was afraid to say that I was feeling my way through and I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know the answer and I wasn't going to know until we were standing there in rehearsal. Um, it's scary for everyone else when you're trying to be a leader uh, it's, and the business forces too. But it's also scary personally, like what if I'm standing there and I don't know what to say? That's really, really fucking scary. Because there's like uh, 30 people standing there looking at you and you're supposed to know the answer. Um, something about this show, man, I just felt like I, whenever that came up, I, I had a, I, I knew, I knew what to do, which I have, it's, I've not, uh, I've not experienced that before in life. Uh, there's something about this show. 
th this is potentially uh, an unfair question, and you can definitely punt, and you can come back on in one to six to 12 months to answer it in a different <laughs> way. But um, one of the things that was really uh, effective about the show is that, you know, it was, it's a limited series. And you told everything that you wanted to tell about these people, not about the world, not about the virus, you know, but about these people in this circumstance, these theater dorks circling, you know, the Great Lakes. Um, some yet, of them are dorks. Okay. Some of them are pretty cool. <laughs> Andy, Andy, are you about to ask the Red Bandana Cinematic Universe question? I think the Red go. Bandana, Here I think go. they're actually, they're, they've been gifted to the Sheridanverse. I, feel like they I, I was going to say, that, that yeah. feels very tailored. Um, no, I, I guess the question <laughs> is, have them. You, you, we started this conversation by saying, you know, the TV landscape has shaped, has changed even as you've been in it. You know, limited series became understandable and, and digestible, and this was so successful as a limited series. But now we love it. Other people love it. Are people clamoring for Station 12? Is there more between years 1 and 20 well, that interest <laughs> you? Like, do you want to return to this, or is that a foolish question that people ask oh, no. in the, in the wake of success? Uh, the hard thing is I don't know, I don't know about the do, – do I – it's not even do I want to. Am I capable of doing mm -hmm. that again? Because it was too hard. Like, is my family really want to go through? I mean, I love the world we made. There's definitely more. Like, how did Tyler meet Rose? I want to know. What's the church look like that they make? Like, I'm curious about year 25 and year five and watching Matilda Lawler grow up and be 17 and play Kirsten again. Like, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I think we need a little time. The, I, the thing that I'm really curious about, though, is Miranda and Danielle Deadweilers. What happened in the 13 years between the time she burned down the pool house and came back to see Arthur? She had to start again. But she's been working. Like, I would watch a whole different show. Yeah. That was that was Danielle Deadweiler in the lead. Um Perhaps there is some IP out there that could uh, contribute to that as well. We'll see what happens. But um, can, I, can I say one more thing too about that? Yeah. I've said, I've talked about it to, to in different places. So I forget. I only, it's, I'm scared to sound like a dick when I say I knew. Uh, like, so I, I'm always care, but I actually like would rather say that because it's felt true. But the reason that I've been saying, or I can say that to you guys and you're millions of people who fucking is that the days I didn't know there was someone next to me who knew on this show. There always, and there were so many days I didn't know, but there was always someone there who did, whether it was Daniel Deadweiler on day three doing the monologue at the end of three. That was day three of our shoot. Out of order, the first, the second scene of episode three we shot when she went to the pitch in the boardroom and did that. Uh, Danielle was the showrunner that day. <laughs> uh, Mackenzie was the showrunner uh, on all the days that I didn't know what to do. A lot of the scenes in 10. Jessica Rhodes, our producer, was. Um, Hero was. Our editor, editorial team was. Like, there were a ton of days, days I didn't know. Um, but we, we built such a good team. All the, and Helen Huang, our, our costume designer, Ruth Ammon, our production designer, there was always someone there <laughs> Uh, if I went down, someone could say, this is what we're doing. That happened a lot. Uh, you can't make a show without that. But like we had, this is a special team. Um, there was so many people who spoke the language of the show by the end. 
Christopher Ryan! <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, man, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for making this show. Can I come back like S-Mail? Like, yeah. Can I come just like shoot the yeah. shit? I wanna, Whenever you want, I just the door's be, open. I, I, you've been busy, by the way. I have been quite, yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a veil. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're we should now. find some spots for you on Ringer NFL. Oh my God. Can we, uh, can we, so we is, you can do yes, some Devontae Adams propaganda. Because the thing is about Sam, like Sam just wants to come on and talk about TV. Like that's what he wants to do. I feel like maybe you want to talk about other things. I want to talk. <laughs> I'm going to the divisional game in at Lambeau uh, in two weeks. I'm going with my family. But I'm gonna I'm gonna mic drop right now. My grandfather is the architect of Lambeau Field. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Holy <Whoa>. shit! <laughs> we have really good seats because he. I would I would hope so. And his firm took he and this is so great for my grandpa who's long long gone. Uh, but he was a good dude. Uh, Forty five yard line section eighteen row thirty. So like outside and he didn't do he didn't go fancy. He went he went fifty yard line uh, Packer sideline. So, and it's, it's so good. So I grew up going to Lambeau um, and now I'm going back. So you didn't mind all those blizzards on set. You didn't mind. It always fucking sucks. It still fucking sucks. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's the thing. It's awful. Winter's terrible. (laughs) I had had showrunner. I was like, get me the heated core vest with USB battery powered heating (laughs) things in it. I was so, I was in full diva mode in Canada. Yeah, I I think that now that you have some downtime, you could do a little investigation of like why the kid from Green Bay made a show in a Canadian blizzard like you need the white lotus deal you know what I mean like you need to make your next three shows at resorts but like was, has has getting back into sports been like your palate cleanser like to get to like- you know what's so crazy I know we got to go but the day we started shooting was January 12th uh two years ago and the Packers made the NFC championship game the last two years I was standing we were shooting that scene in one when Sia is um like coming around yeah. and and gathering people and we're realizing the scale and we were that we were shooting that day and I looked over at our our not our dit one of our guys behind me and I saw on the iPad it was halftime in the NFC championship game and I forgot I forgot that it was then and like I you know that's what show running does to you you can't follow the things you love uh, properly mm-hmm. anymore, even your hobbies. And they lost. They got fucking destroyed in that game. It was awful. But same in Canada last year. I, I was busy. I barely looked up at the NFC Championship game. And like I'm like, that's not normal, Pat. You're obsessed with the Packers. Sorry, you we, wouldn't we, want to watch fucking yeah. Tom Brady destroy them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But we got. I was like, I, yes, to answer your question, I love getting back to caring about the NFL. Yeah. Because like, it feels like balance you need balance. Uh, every, we all do in the pandemic, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention this year. Well, man, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome back anytime to talk about whatever you want. Uh, and, and thanks again for the show. Man. Yeah. We're stamping your platinum pass card. The show. Right. I love it. Yeah. You I love did it. it. All, all it took was the hardest thing you've ever done in well, your life. I just said two years, <laughs> and now you can come <laughs> shoot the shit with us. We were produced as always by Kyle McMullen. Thanks again to Patrick Somerville for joining us for Andy and myself. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me, you guys. You guys are the best.